if they decided to build a car the way they build a house, you know, a whole bunch of craftspeople come to your front yard and piece by piece as they arrive, people figure out how to assemble them, cutting things to fit until finally there's a car. If we built a car that way, you know, the way we build a house, it would cost more than $2 million to build a typical car. Why is that? Because cars are built with a factory. Factories are expensive and factories are efficient. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about marginal cost and the revolution that we are living through. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is the year. It's time for you to write your book. Time for you to finally sit down and write your book. Not just write it, but publish it. Writing in community is back. You can find out the details at akimbo.com slash go. But what you'll do in six months is not just write a book, but publish it. Kristen Hatcher, creator of this community, has something to say. That's right. This is the year you write your book. And here's the thing. The words are yours alone to write, but you don't have to do it by yourself. Come find the others and get your words into the world. Join us in writing in community. We can't wait to see you there. Okay, that's pretty obvious. We don't build cars the way we build houses. We build houses in an extremely inefficient way, partly because they're really big, partly because there's a history of them all being different from one another, and partly because there are systems in place that make it that building a house in a factory is logistically and bureaucratically difficult. Okay, fine. But what about all the other stuff in our lives? How much does it cost to make a can of Budweiser beer? Or a topic I know a little bit more about, how much does it cost to make a copy of my book, The Practice? Well, the first copy of The Practice cost the publisher tens of thousands of dollars because not only did they have to typeset it, not only did they have to edit it, not only did they have to find a printing company, but the printer has a big press that uses lots and lots and lots of paper and has no ability whatsoever to print one book at a time. It's a factory. The first book, really, really expensive. The last book costs about $1.20 to print in hardcover. That's it. That's called the marginal cost. The marginal cost is what does it cost to make the last one? Not counting setup, not counting overhead, not counting the factory. The last one, just the pieces you needed to make the last one, how much did that cost? And there's a reason we ask this question. We ask it because one of the fundamental laws of microeconomics is that in an ideal marketplace, of which none really exist, a provider who's got a factory should keep lowering her price bit by bit until the very last person is able to buy it at one penny above marginal cost. Because even if you made a penny on that last one, it was still worth it to you because that penny can go to pay for your factory. Now, there are reasons this is fictional because the market talks to the market. And if someone finds out that you're buying a copy of my book for $1.25, they're not going to be happy that they trusted the bookstore 
and paid $18 or $19 for it. And so now we can start thinking about the choices that a provider makes when it comes to marginal cost. For example, most of the books that are going to be published in the future are not going to be printed the way Penguin Random House does it. Penguin Random House has a business model based on scarce shelf space, based on the bookstore, based on having a sales force that goes into the world and pushes the book a lot at the beginning. They push it a lot at the beginning for two reasons. One, they're trying to make a cultural impact. And two, the efficiency of the factory starts to fade if you have to store those books for months or years into the future. A company called Lightning Source, a technology called Indigo, and some others came along, and they figured out that it's possible to build a huge Rube Goldberg device that's super complicated that takes a PDF file at one end and prints exactly one copy of the book at a time. There is no economy of scale. Printing one book, printing 10 books, printing 100 books, each book costs the same. There's no fancy startup costs. You also don't get that beautiful patina that you get from 500 years of bookbinding and printing experience. So someone who's in the book business can tell pretty easily the difference between a print-on-demand book and a, quote, real book. Question is, if print-on-demand is so great, why doesn't everybody do it? Well, one copy out of that fancy machine costs way more than one copy out of the big old-fashioned printing process. Because the factory might be cheaper, but the marginal cost of each additional book is higher because it's not as efficient at scale. But the book publishers, they don't need to worry about scale so much anymore because there aren't 4,000 bookstores that are each going to buy 10 copies of the book and put them on the cash register because there aren't that many independent bookstores left. And more and more sales are going to Amazon and a few other online retailers. And so now you can make five books at a time. And those five books at a time sit there, maybe even just one, until someone orders it, and then you can make another one. It's okay because you are not worried about storage. You're not worried about shredding the books that don't sell. Suddenly, instead of being able to keep 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 books in stock, which is all you could do when you needed to fire up the factory every time you needed more books, instead of having books out of print all the time. Now, basically, every book can be in print all the time. In print, in quotation marks, because if someone wants one, we can make one. And the infinite shelf space of Amazon supports this. Now, you probably see where I'm going, because it's one thing to say a book has a marginal cost of a buck or two, but what's the marginal cost of Stevie Wonder's superstition? It cost a fortune to make the first copy of that amazing single. It took Stevie Wonder decades to be able to earn the skill and insight it took to create that song. Then they went into the studio, and lots and lots of people worked with him to make that song. And you get the idea. The first copy of Superstition in today's dollars probably cost a million dollars. How much does a copy cost if you buy it in the iTunes store? How much does a copy cost if you listen to it on Spotify? What happens when we make it digital 
and that works for Kindle books as well, is the marginal cost goes from a couple bucks to deliver it on acetate to a penny or less than a penny, and in some cases, absolutely zero. That is, bandwidth costs keep going down. As storage costs keep going down, the marginal cost of one more person engaging with one more bit of content on the web rapidly approaches zero. And as you know from arithmetic class when you were in fifth grade when it danced with being actual math, dividing by zero leads to really weird results. Dividing by zero starts to create a sort of infinity. And we could talk about zero marginal cost all day, but that's not what I came to talk about today. What I came to talk about today is negative marginal cost. What happens if the thing you make actually works better when more people have it? What happens when there's a network effect? So let's think of the first example that occurs to me, which is you're a magazine publisher in 1900, and you figure out that every person who subscribes to the magazine actually makes you a profit even if they don't pay for their subscription. Because when we add the ads in, you make more from the ads in each issue than it costs you to print and distribute that issue. Suddenly, not only don't you need to charge for one more reader, you're willing to pay to get one more reader. And advertisers saw what magazines were doing and they invented the ABC, the Audit Bureau of Circulation, so that magazine publishers wouldn't spam the world with magazines and then charge advertisers extra to reach people who didn't want to read the magazine. So there are tons and tons of rules, like how big a prize you can get for subscribing to a magazine. Famously, Rolling Stone flaunted the rules by offering people the first issue of the magazine, if they subscribed to Rolling Stone for a year for $8, you got the first issue delivered by Federal Express and you received it the next day. So it's pretty obvious Jan Wenner and the folks at Rolling Stone were losing money on every person who paid eight bucks because they were spending more than that simply to send you the first issue. But they understood the idea of the negative marginal cost. But now, now it's far more widespread. And that's because of the network effect. Think back to the fax machine or the telephone. The first person with a telephone, what exactly did they do with it? Because you can't call yourself. You'll get a busy signal. Telephone works better if your friends also have telephones. And the same with fax machines. But now, now that we live in the world defined by the network effect, it gets way more interesting. Because the value of the enterprise itself and its ongoing cash flow may very well be related to the fact that they need all the people, or at least all the right people, to be on the network. And so when we live in a world of negative marginal cost that is defining our culture, Facebook and Twitter and go down the list, Clubhouse, they all need the right people in the room or it doesn't work. And so they will create all sorts of incentives for human beings to join and all sorts of incentives for human beings to not leave. They're not doing you a favor. The marginal cost isn't $1.20. The marginal cost isn't zero. Marginal cost is negative. You are doing them a favor by being in the room with them because that is at the essence of their business model. And so what that means is that in the industrial age, our culture was defined by consumers who made choices to buy things 
that they thought were worth more than they cost, and the sellers had to price them high enough that they could make more than the marginal cost. But now, our culture is a business model. It is driven by enterprises that understand they don't have to charge you anything. In fact, if they could, they would pay you because they still come out ahead, which means we're not the customers anymore. We're the product. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with answers to some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or anything previous, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. A bunch of questions this week, two that go together, but first, to get us started, here's Jeff and Tacos. Hi, Seth. This is Jeff in Los Angeles. I was listening to your episode on modern choice theory and was rather surprised and amused to hear you use an audio clip pulled from a YouTube video I made several years ago called Ask Your Doctor About Tacos. Even more surprising is the fact that I had also just listened to your episode on trademarks, and here was an immediate opportunity to find joy in the innocuous sharing of my past work. Anyway, uh, I have a question somewhat related to this coincidence. Fast forward to the present, and I am now in the position of pitching comedic ideas to streaming networks. In your Modern Choice Theory episode, you mentioned the decision fatigue that prevents viewers from diverging beyond the front page of Netflix. Given that the things I create now are inherently not front page material, I'm curious what tactics or factors might spur people to overcome their decision fatigue and move beyond the front page to seek out something new and unique. Thanks for your perspective. Your work continues to be helpful and inspiring. First, Jeff, thank you. Thanks for doing the work. I thought the Ask Your Doctor About Tacos video was hysterically funny, and I'm sure you've got a lot more than that. Thank you for generously putting it into the world. Let's talk about the homepage of Netflix. Number one, everyone doesn't see the same homepage. Number two, the purpose of the homepage for Netflix, because they don't get paid when you watch more video, is to keep you from quitting Netflix, that now that they've grown to the point where growth is going to slow, they need to stop attrition. And one way they keep people from quitting is by getting them hooked on a habit and by holding out the prospect that next month they will miss out on something if they let their subscription lapse. So that's one reason why the homepage of Netflix is different for different people, because they need to find things 
that will tickle this person's approach to genre, to what they're interested in. Number two, Netflix does a lot to promote the things that are popular. Why would they do that? Well, it turns out popular things are popular because they're popular. And so seeing that a show is number one in the country or trending this week appeals to many people because they don't want to be left behind. But that's not really the answer to your question. When you are pitching something to a network like Netflix, the person you are pitching to doesn't own the network. They are asking themselves a simple question. If I buy this, what will I tell my boss? And we don't exactly know what their instructions are. It might be that their instructions are, buy stuff you like. You have good taste. Let's share it. It's that simple. That is certainly the tradition in lots of areas of publishing. Or it might be, here's the data. Here's the data that shows us what keeps someone from quitting, what keeps someone on the platform. Bring me stuff that matches the data. So part of your job as you explore what it means to sell things to these networks is to understand what's on their agenda. What are they looking for? What are they seeking to buy today? But the last part is the most important part, which is what makes a show popular on Netflix is not whether or not it is featured on the homepage. What makes it popular is if someone sees it and tells 10 friends that they have embraced, deeply embraced, the idea of word of mouth, of the water cooler conversation, of people binging stuff, getting ahead, using their status as an insider, as an early adopter, to tell other people about what's coming up, that Netflix's biggest marketing expenditure is its customers. Its customers are the people they are feeding stuff to at great expense so that they will tell other people. And as you figured out in getting that taco video in front of me, because you never sent it to me. Someone who sent it to me sent it to me after someone sent it to them, who sent it to them, who sent it to them. And that's good news for people who are making great stuff. Hi, Seth. This is David Stein from Tucson. I really appreciate your episode on modern monetary theory. MMT is something I've been studying, speaking, and writing about for over a decade, first as an investment advisor and then as a financial educator and podcaster. My biggest concern with MMT is the government controls how much it spends, but the private sector decides almost everything else, including how much output of goods and services is produced how much money is created through bank loans, how big the federal budget deficit will be based on how much the private sector wants to save versus spend, which in turn impacts incomes and the amount of taxes owed. And most importantly, whether households and businesses continue to trust the story of money. Inflation is as much about belief and narrative as it is about money printing. If the private sector believes inflation is coming, they act differently. They hoard demand higher wages, and take actions that can lead to more inflation. My question is, what can citizens and politicians do to help maintain trust in fiat currency in an age when so many people can't even agree on basic facts? Thanks, Seth, for all of the thought-provoking Akimbo episodes. Hi, Seth. This is James from Glendale and a longtime listener and just uh, had a comment about your episode on modern monetary theory. And the gist I get from this is it's moving monies from private hands into 
we'll describe it as an elect, essentially, right? A um, an elect who would then take that money and decide, act on it in a sort of, I guess, equi- equi- equitable way in, in, in some way. And um, I think that sounds great on its surface. I, my, my concern is that that you will end up with another sort of military industrial complex situation where you just have this, this self-perpetuating state apparatus that just grows. And that I guess the fear I have is that you'll end up with a population that is paying more and more for a state apparatus, which essentially gives itself raises and pensions that its population increasingly doesn't see themselves having and uh, a very libertarian idea of it. But uh, yeah, just wanted to hear your thoughts. Thank you, David. And thank you, James. I hope it's okay. I lightly edited your questions to get the points across, but let me try to interweave the two. First of all, David, you're absolutely correct. Inflation is a challenge. Inflation, for people who have never lived through it, ends up undermining the way we interact with each other and with the economy because it changes our story about money. And you are correct that inflation itself is a story. But it's really important to begin with this. The United States has significantly more money floating around than it did 100 years ago. That is not inflationary. And the reason is because the United States is significantly more productive than it was 100 years ago. They go hand in hand. We have to increase the amount of money as the amount of productivity increases because otherwise money gets too scarce. All right, with that understood then, what should we do to increase productivity? Did it increase productivity in this country when we spent billions of dollars to build the interstate highway system? Did it increase productivity in this country when we spent tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to build the infrastructure for the internet? Did it increase productivity when we figured out how to map the human genome? These were all projects of community action. They weren't done by private industry. That the NASA program, putting men on the moon and bringing them back safely, ended up directly leading to the productivity increases and Moore's Law that is allowing you to listen to this very podcast. So there is proof over and over again that concerted community action can create knowledge, can create education, can create possibility, all of which lead to productivity. And productivity is the ultimate antidote to inflation. James, your point about taxation is totally worth talking about, but my understanding of modern monetary theory is not that what we are talking about is a household that goes into huge amounts of debt to buy treats and prizes, that a government, a government that can print money, is not a household, and the idea of a balanced budget might be mistaken, that we are not talking when we're talking about modern monetary theory about taxing people heavily to pay for things. So to pick an absurd example, the government could print a million dollars in $10 bills and then burn them. There would be absolutely no net impact on the economy other than the tiny cost of printing 100,000 $10 bills. That has 
no repercussions because he can print money. Well, what happens if the government prints money and then pays people to tutor six-year-olds so that they can read better? What is the impact on the rest of our culture and our economy when we do that? Well, when we move people from underemployment to full employment, we are actually planting the seeds for productivity increases. When we put together a moonshot-type program to come up with super-efficient solar panels and windmills that lead to electricity dropping in price dramatically, yes, we've overwhelmingly shifted the productivity of the economy. Because if electricity is free or close to free, productivity goes up. And so you see how this cycle works. It is not appropriate to look at our government's choices the way a household might look at them. They're different things. Macroeconomics, which I was never good at in school, is really different than microeconomics. Your mileage may vary. You should ask an actual expert these sorts of questions, but that's my take on it. One last question, this one from Mike. Hi, Seth. This is Mike Adams from Moorpark. Hey, what I've noticed about your last podcast and about your work in general is that uh, you're kind of a bartender of ideas and you mix a little culture, a little self-realization and some other secret ingredients and you have a Seth cocktail and you're kind of a clarity savant. And I guess it's kind of what makes you, you. And I'm a writer working on a book and I'm struggling with clarity and I don't know what my big idea is or what the right big idea is. I've, I thought about who the book is for, what the problem is, you know, why my solution is different. And I have a bunch of subtitles. I think most of them are okay, but but none of them are great. So what I want to ask is when you're writing a book or working on a project, and how do you get the big idea? How do you find the right subtitle that communicates the work is about and uh, kind of keeps you on task? Do you decide ahead of writing or ahead of the work, uh, kind of let the idea take you where it will or a little of both? And I guess what I'm asking is how do you find that kind of that clear bridge between what you want to say and what your audience needs to hear. Thanks so much. Appreciate all the work that you do. Thanks for this, Mike. Here's my take. It's about shipping the work. It's about pitching your idea in the elevator, pitching your idea on a long walk with a stranger, pitching your idea online, pitching your idea with blog posts, saying it out loud, saying it out loud and seeing if eyes light up. The best way I know to write a good nonfiction book is to give a great TED Talk first. Because giving an 18-minute TED Talk is way more difficult on a minute-for-minute basis than spending six months writing a book because you only have 18 minutes. You will get better if you keep giving your 18-minute talk over and over again. Not the same way, but different ways. Which lines work? Which cadences work? Yes, it's true. Miles Davis made Kind of Blue in four days. But most spectacular works of art take a while. And the reason they take a while is not because it takes a long time to type something, not because it takes a long time to play something, but because it takes a long time to learn to hear your own voice, to figure out what other people are hearing and seeing when you do your work. So my short answer is ship the work. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.